Well, good afternoon and a very warm welcome to St Paul's and to this Sunday Forum. My name is Mark Oakley and I'm the Canon Chancellor here and it's my privilege today to both welcome you and introduce today's speaker. When I look back in my own life and ask which books acted like magnets, as it were, pulling me towards the mystery of God, it's quite easy to answer. Harry Williams's True Wilderness, for instance, had a very profound effect on me in teaching me that Christianity might be interested not just in truth but in honesty as well. And one of the other books that inspired me around, at a guess, 1985, was Esther Duval's Seeking God, The Way of St. Benedict. And I can recall in very vivid colours the way in which that book translated a little rule of life written for men 1,500 years ago in rural Italy into a very fresh and practical guide to Christian apprenticeship for lay and ordained people today. And her books, Living with Contradiction and Seeking Life, The Baptismal Invitation of the Rule of St. Benedict, continue to open up the resonances of Benedict's rule for people today. It's like ancient wisdom is hoeing our soil and turning up earth badly needed if we're going to spiritually flourish. So Esther Duval is someone to and for whom I've always personally been very grateful, but I've never actually had the opportunity of meeting her until today. So I'm very thrilled to be able to welcome her. She is a historian with a particular interest in landscape and architecture, who grew up in my own county of Shropshire, and as well as an interest in Benedictine spirituality, she studied Celtic spirituality and written a number of books on the Celtic vision, as well also as on Thomas Merton. In 1991, Esther received the Templeton UK Award for making the way of St. Benedict accessible to laymen and women, and so who else should we have here to speak on this very topic today? Esther will speak for about 30 to 40 minutes, then we'll open up the floor to some questions. We will end very punctually at two o'clock, and then there'll be an opportunity for you to buy books by Esther. So would you please welcome Esther Duval as she speaks on Seeking God, Seeking Life, The Way of St. Benedict. Esther. very much for that extremely sympathetic um, introduction. I'm very pleased to be here. A letter came out of the blue from Elizabeth Foy, and I'm sorry that she can't be present, um, inviting me to talk about the rule of St. Benedict in my life and uh, my subsequent thinking about it. Well, that really, really couldn't be a more attractive invitation. It gave me a chance to think back, and it is perfectly true that I think it's next year, it will be 30 years since I wrote Seeking a God, the Way of St. Benedict. 
30 years and how utterly extraordinary that is and how grateful I continue to be that I wrote that book actually entirely by chance to get publishers out of a difficulty. Hitherto, the Lent book had always been written by a pillar of the establishment and, of course, by a man, and it had always been commissioned at least two years in advance. And then one year there came a time of crisis, and I was approached by a publishing friend who said, can you get us out of a difficulty? Uh, and so I said yes, because it was a challenge. So I read that book in six months. Hitherto, I've written very dull books about local government, so it was quite a challenge. Nevertheless, here is a chance to pay homage to the extraordinary way in which St. Benedict came into my life and how I look back on that as a mystery of grace. Or if you like God's sense of timing or even God's sense of humour. I didn't know that Mark and I shared Shropshire. My father was a country vicar outside Ludlow where I went to school. His church had been a Benedictine priory church in the Middle Ages, but that meant nothing to me as I grew up. He belonged to that old school of antiquarian archaeological enthusiasts. I knew the dates of the charters, I knew all sorts of lists and facts, but the stones didn't cry out. The vicarage looked across at the Priory Gateway. That was really all that remained intact of the old Priory. And it was as if I never passed through those gates and realised that the remains of a Benedictine Priory could speak to me about a way of life that might actually touch my heart, might bring me some sort of deepening of the way I prayed and saw the world. Instead of that, like every other good vicar's daughter in the old days, I went to church. The pews were arranged hierarchically. We sat in the third pew because the Earl of Plymouth sat in the front and his estate agent. We said the creed, standing to attention as if it was a national anthem. And being the younger of two sisters, I was determined to outpray my younger sister in saying prayers at night in a chilly, drafty vicarage bedroom. And all the time, all the time, the rule of St. Benedict could have showed me a wider, more humane vision of the Christian life. But then, um, I married, I, I was a historian, I'm really a local historian, um, and I come to Canterbury. My husband becomes the Dean of Canterbury, the tied cottage that goes with the jobs, if you happen to be an Anglican priest, meant that we were living because Canterbury had been one of the very greatest of Benedictine foundations in the Middle Ages. 
We found ourselves living in the prior's building, the prior's lodging of the medieval Benedictine community. It was a medieval house. It had been slightly cheered up at the Reformation, but essentially it was a medieval house. No bad thing if you have four little boys in five years. I think Thomas, the youngest, was then about seven. We could put them four to seven stone steps up a star or staircase and they would be out of earshot. The building impressed me. Being trained, I escaped from Cambridge and its terrible text approach to life, to Leicester, where I could study local history and begin to read the landscape and visual evidence and read buildings. I began to read the buildings, and they fascinated me. The back of the garden, the brew house, the bakehouse, going out of the left at that side entrance, the infirmary. Um, uh, so it went on. And there was one day which I remember so vividly. They were doing some excavations, damp coming in to um, the undercroft and outside, digging the ground outside. There were three skeletons, three monks lying in the ground at the east end of the cathedral. And I thought, these are the men whose hands built this place but whose vision furnished this place. And so I want to learn more about it. And so as a result, I picked up um, the role. And Mark Oakley will, I'm sure, find some interest in the fact that it was the visual and reading the buildings that preceded reading um, the text. I picked up the rule. I thought, thank goodness, it's very short. It's 9,000 words. Um, I don't think it will be of any particular interest to me. And then suddenly I found that after all, um, family life um, and a very full and complicated um, uh, demands made on one as uh, the, the, the wife of the dean endless hospitality and all sorts of uh, expectations laid on one, that reading about how Benedict held together a community, a household of men who had to earn their own living, who had to pray together and who had to study together. After all, that wasn't so very unlike the sort of life that most of us live. But it was because they had to earn their living that that really um, was the first moment. In fact, I can still remember, because Benedict, and this is so unlike, really, my childhood experience of uh, religion, where I thought you had to be nice, and you had to say prayers, and you had to be good. Benedict is much more realistic than that. And he begins with matter, with material things, with the tools of David life, and with our own physical self as well. And I read a phrase where he said that I could handle the daily things in the kitchen, in the garden, in the pantry, with as much reverence and respect as if they were the Eucharistic 
vessels of the altar. That was the moment when he broke down the divide from between matter and spirit, between material and um, spiritual. And so that really was for me the um, starting um, point. But then because he realizes that we are holistic people, and here it is, this recognition that we have three elements, body and mind and spirit, that we have to honor our physical selves, we have to honor our mind, our God-given mind, and not least our God-given imagination. But the heart of it all is the life um, of prayer and how those are held in balance and how if you're to find room for each of them, you have to impose on your day some sort of rhythm and some sort of um, structure. And again, it was an image that the buildings gave me. Three things were happening now. I was asking, how can reading um, the role of St. Benedict, how can experiencing this text, which shows how monastic life was lived around the year 500, how can that flow into the images that this place is giving me? One place above all captured my imagination, and that is the cloisters, the open, uncluttered space with the carved walkway running um, um, around it, and the audacity of keeping open, uncluttered space when you have a hugely busy monastic community, probably 100 or 150, they're earning their living, they're looking after um, husbandry, they are working in the library, they're making manuscripts above all, they are welcoming visitors, and they are keeping Opus Dei, the work of God, as the central, essential foundation of it all. And yet, there is that open space. That is an open, uncluttered space. That is a space which is, again, if you make the connection between that image of the monastic complex and our own selves, is the open, uncluttered space that we all try try against the odds to hold at the center of our own lives. The image goes further because it was always a spring of water, a fountain at the center of it all. The spring of life, the woman of Samaria, the word, the refreshing word, because it's all about keeping an open and uncluttered space in order that we should listen to God, have time, silence, space, be aware of the presence of God, listening to him um, 
um, in um, our lives. All the way around, the monks would be endlessly moving from eating and sleeping. Benedict is so down to earth that he tells us that we should have um, enough sleep, that we should have good food, that we should have a little wine, that the food should be carefully served. We are to enjoy the good things of life. Then there's, they would be perhaps doing whatever their manual labor was. But the whole thing, again, if you think of the image, is anchored in the church. All the flow of activity comes in um, and um, out of the foundation of it all, um, prayer. So I began to see that Benedict was giving me all sorts of practical help. He was shaping my attitude. He was helping my um, approach. And so what about the vows? In my very evangelical childhood, the vows had seemed like restrictions, like chains, like always saying um, no. But that was because I thought they were poverty, chastity, and obedience to my shame. And so the vows of my childhood were being um, saying, no, well, chastity, that's very difficult if you're a married um, woman. Um, no to um, poverty, um, not possessing anything. No to saying no all the time. Benedict's vows are utterly different. They are wonderful and they serve you so well. They have deepened my um, ability to follow Christ against the odds, um, if you like, sometimes hanging on to my loyalty to uh, a church by my fingernails, but finding that, here I quote somebody who says, the monastic life has always guarded the life of the church. So here, forgetting the institutional church and how it sometimes gets itself tangled up in politics and fundraising and things we want to forget. Here are three Benedictine vows or promises, shaping, if you like, the disposition of the heart. Benedict doesn't tell me what to do. He helps me to make decisions. And these three, and he begins with stability. It's the cornerstone been monastic rules before, but stability. It's a wonderful, wonderful concept. Again, living in Canterbury helped because it wouldn't happen now, would it? But they gave the enthusiastic dean's wife, because she seemed to like the cathedral building so much, the key. Oh, I could wander in a day or night, and I have to say that the crypt, the undercroft, at night with those strong pillars built at the time when St. Anselm was an archbishop in the 12th century. Those strong pillars, they made a statement about stability, being strong, being steadfast, being still, 
without that firmness, if you like, it's a steadfastness, a perseverance of the Psalms, or if you like, in a modern term, hanging in there, any other structure built above wouldn't really be possible. But then the next file promises conversatio morum, and we had changed that into um, being open to the new, or if you like, living open to change. Benedict knows about paradox, and I'm so grateful for that. Benedict is helping us to hold two things together. So yes, you stay still, but you don't become static or dead, like Lot's wife. (laughs) You move forward. You are open to change. God, following God, is going to be a risky business. The Christ who had nowhere to lay on his head. And so you are being open to the new. You're on a journey. You're discovering more about yourself. But the true self, the resurrected self, the self in Christ. This is not self-indulgence, though it's very good psychology. But the third is obedience. Obedience which sounds threatening, but when you take it back to the Latin, ob audiens, to listen, to listen um, intently. So that all the time, or trying to listen to the word of God in whatever way it reaches you, say that your point of reference is God's will. And the question that you ask yourself, if you're living with obedience, is, is it God's will and not mine? So these were (coughs) utterly um, amazing. And in the roller coaster life that most of us live, they saw me through the years, which were glorious years, of family life with um, young um, children. But then in subsequent years, and with um, the ending of a marriage after 40 years, then you have to rethink your life. And those of you who heard the sermon will know that it was a sermon about loneliness and about um, being alone. And you don't always choose to be alone when you're at my age. And now I read the vows at a more profound level still. Steadfastness is about living with reality. It's about not dreaming, not having the fantasy which says, if only it had been different in the past, or it will be different in the future. You have to live with the reality of the present moment, these present circumstances. And Rowan Williams, whom I knew when he was um, a bishop up down the road, once put it so simply, God cannot work with unreality. God can only work with reality. To live with stability prevents you escaping from the circumstances of the present day, the present moment. But then change, you have to move forward. 
You have to be open. You have to be ready for whatever threshold you are going to cross, chosen or not chosen. You keep moving forward. And then always praying, listening. God, is it your will? Is it a piece of self-indulgence? Is it a piece of self-deception? Or am I really, really trying to hear your voice and do your will? Now, listen is the very, very first word of the rule. Listen, listen carefully, listen carefully, my son. And because Benedict is soaked in scripture, Benedict knows the word, Benedict has lived and breathed and prayed the scripture. He quotes endlessly from scripture, and if you look at the rule, there are lots of it's in italic to scripture quotations. Even more powerful are the resonances, the allusions. Only last weekend, when I was at a weekend on Henry Vaughan, I live on the Welsh borders, the riches of the Welsh border country, and not least its poetic tradition. Henry Vaughan last weekend, Thomas Brahern coming up, George Hubbard waiting there in um, the wings. The Henry Vaughan weekend, there was a lecture on... Um, how in the 17th century it wasn't borrowing because everybody belonged to a common word in which if he uses allusions in his poetry, if he alludes to other writers, they would pick it up. And I hadn't thought, and I confess it to you, that allusion comes from ludere to play. What delight that is. So Benedict all the time is playing with the scriptures and he hopes that you will realize when he says, my son, he means he's thinking of the words um, at baptism. This is my son, the beloved. Listen carefully and each of us is the beloved, the loved one. Each of us is the prodigal the prodigal who has lost their way, squandered their good fortune, and suddenly coming to himself and again, it's as if the confusion and the fog of um, his talking to himself disperse in obedience. He hears um, the voice of God and he sees what a state he's in. And then, metanoia, he changes. And this is really the second um, vow, isn't it? He returns, and he returns to the loving Father. And there are all sorts of ways one could describe um, the rule. But I think of it um, in one of its most powerful aspects as being homecoming. I've been to Fleury, Saint-Benoît-Saint-Loire, where there's still a Benedictine community. I think St. Paul's should have a Benedictine pilgrimage. I think you should all go off. Oh, perhaps you aren't. Um, anyway, if you go to <coughs> Fleury, if you go down into the crypt where Benedict um, 
uh, two meals. And if you do, like I did, early in the morning, a lighted candle, a prayer written in French, which means you read it stumblingly and slowly. And what he says is, St. Benedict, you know the human condition. You know we're lost. You know that we've lost the key of our heart. You know, Benedict, above all, we want to come home. We want to come home to our own true selves. We want that sense of deep belonging. But above all, we want the relationship with um, a loving father. Benedict is profoundly scriptural. Benedict doesn't want us to be monastic followers, followers of St. Benedict. He wants to bring us to Christ. The prologue to the rule, which is a wonderful, wonderful piece of writing, it's so urgent. Listen carefully, my son, I've got something that you must all hear. And I only discovered recently, reading a commentary and in a very boring footnote, a fascinating clue. It was a baptismal, based on a baptismal homily. That means, say, it was for people preparing for baptism, lay baptism, of course. It's addressed to all of us who are Christians. It applies to all of um, us. And he is all the time pointing us to Christ, to the risen Christ. He had spent time in Rome studying as a student, and he never ever despised the intellect. He tells us at the end of the rule where to read, and he gives us different sources where to read critically our um, intellects. We are to respect them, but he knows that the whole truth doesn't lie there, that there is something else, and that is heart knowledge, and that is um, wisdom. And so he spends, we don't know, two or three years in the cave at Sobiake. This is a wonderful, wonderful prayer. This time of silence and solitude and prayer, holding himself still before the gaze of God. Even if you don't remember anything else that I say, just think of that phrase. Holding himself still before the gaze of God. Aware of the gaze of God, coming into his um, uncluttered, undefended heart. And that means that, and this is a wonderful moment and it's so significant, it's Easter Day, Benedict's been on his own. God doesn't, oh, he's um, a, a local um, peasant in the nose, left food down in front of the cave, they, um, in case you're worried about him eating. But he didn't see anyone else until a neighboring priest comes and greets Benedict and says, Benedict, it's Easter Day. And Benedict, says, looks up and says, Easter it is, brother, because you are here. Let's take that um, and see that Benedict looks at this man and says, Easter, uh, 
the day of the risen Christ, I see Easter in you. I see the true self, the risen self in Christ, the Christ self. This is what Benedict is helping us all to live into and to see in other people too. That little phrase, let everyone come be received as Christ, means that you don't see superficially giving people labels and compartmentalizing people but you look beyond that into the true self, the resurrected self um, in Christ. And so, Benedict, we're never going to reach the end of the journey, but there will come change. Benedict says, and this is very consoling, I find, that the way will remain tough and hard going, but there will be change, and the change will come in our hearts. Because he will give us the picture of the heart expanding, growing larger, the heart that is filled with the love of the loving Father for each one of us is going to mean that if we allow it, our hearts will expand with all the delights of love. And so, if in any way we are to become followers um, of Christ, Benedict is just asking us one very, very simple and basic question at the end of each day. Have I each day become a more loving person? With that question. Well, thank you very much, Esther, indeed, for that. If I can just kick off with a, an initial question and give you a little bit of time to start formulating your own. Here we are in a um, very busy part of, of London and um, from about seven o'clock onwards this place becomes, during the Monday to Friday, like a sort of ant colony, you know, rushing around holding Starbucks coffee in one hand and a phone in the other. And uh, It's a frenzy of, uh, of frenzied people. Uh, furies are in the air and it carries on until very late at night. Um, so you have that sort of life going on at the moment. You also have uh, a lot of people living at home under a lot of pressure, single parents, not much money, putting the children in front of the television. And, and, and I'm just asking myself really practically, how do we begin to unclutter the mind and find an uncluttered space where we can begin to find the key to the heart, as you, to use that wonderful phrase that you've used. Because it seems to me that so much is working against it. Uh, whether you've got money, whether you haven't got money, it, at the moment... It, it's relentless. It's relentless. Yes. 
I think you begin by recognizing the need, because most people even won't have time to draw breath to recognize that there is um, a need to have a point of stillness inside um, of um, oneself. And perhaps you might um, convince them that if you do impose structure and boundaries, there's a connection between that and energy. Um, so that instead of being so scattered and dissipated, um, and it's so frightening for me because I live in the middle of, <coughs> of nowhere and I do find London very, very frightening. Um, people knocking you over because they don't see you because they are, you know, engaged in it. And people coming up on the train not looking at a cloud because they're glued to some wretched screen. Um, can you begin um, by saying that to impose some sort of structure on um, life and to be, try to be totally present? Because, in fact, it works. If you are totally present to what you're doing, you will do it much better. That's why Thomas Merton, that American monk who followed the rule of St. Benedict, would be quite brutal to his novices. He was teaching the young men. But if they come up and it's a work period, he would say, go away. This isn't the time to ask me questions. This is a time when I am working. So multi, whatever you call it. Multitasking, <laughs> yes. Mm. I also remember Thomas Merton, when he took his vows and he went into his cell for the first time and, and closed the door behind him, he said, and so I entered the four walls of my freedom. This idea that in order for him to have space, there had to be discipline and boundary. And I I love that, the four walls of my freedom. Yes. Anyway, enough. No, no, that's a very good image. It is the images that stick with us, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Questions from the floor for Esra, please. Yeah, I'm here. But that image is so good because you come in having perhaps paid your entry and you think, I'm not getting my money's worth. There is nothing here. And that forces one to think that emptiness or void or good empty space actually is worth its weight in gold. And that is very counter-cultural, um, um, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I'm very happy to do that because so often they are put in a juxtaposition and if you talk about Celtic monasticism, and it was essentially a monastic movement in Ireland and um, in Wales in the early days, um, then they have in common the respect for um, matter, for the daily rhythm of life and for putting prayer at the heart of it all. If you like, it's symbolized by the Irish high crosses, which have those great, sorry, the great towers with windows at the top going in all directions, which mean that lay people know that the monastic community is praying because a bell is rung, a handbell, and it goes out from there in all four um, directions. 
um, the, Bel uh, the Benedictine and the Celtic have much, much more um, in common than I think people would allow. And so it's very interesting when in the 19th century we get the oral tradition of the prayers and songs and hymns and blessings, you can't separate them, of let's say in the Outer Hebrides or um, in Ireland, which have been collected and translated. We find that the underlying um, attitude there is totally monastic, and that is work is prayer and prayer um, is work. Monks would pray from vigils, the first office of the day, vigil, be alive, be alert, be attentive, watch for the rising of the sun, watch for the coming of Christ. That is how your day starts. It ends with Compline, you make the day complete. A Hebridean woman um, um, begins by um, lighting the fire and she does it, she's laid the peats down to dampen the flame, but not to put it out at night. And she gets up before her household is awake and she gently lifts those peats. She does it rhythmically, praying to the Father and the Son and the Spirit as she does. And then she prays as that a flame comes, that it's a flame of light and brings warmth and nurture then above all, it's a flame of love. And so it's love for herself and her family and her kin and her enemies and the whole world. So her day starts with prayer. And then these Celtic people, and I'm quite sure they learn um, how to pray from the monastic tradition. Um, at the end of the day, you feel so safe, having at your baptism, being baptized in the name of um, the Trinity, who will walk with you in companionship all um, the days of your life. You're so sure in this um, company that you say, I will lie down tonight and I will... Be arm of Christ the victorious will be on my shoulder. I will lay down tonight with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. I will lay down tonight as if um, my bed were my grave and when um, the time of death comes it will be no different. This is very um, monastic, um, both the Celtic and um, the Benedictine, in terms of attitude or approach. And I must say, you see, Benedict wrote regular, he didn't write rules and regulations. He is trying to shape the attitude, he's trying, and I love the phrase, the disposition of the heart. And so the disposition of the heart of a woman in the Hebrides is all towards praying through matter and through work and being aware of the presence of God. And that is ultimately what Benedict, I think, gives us all.
Indeed, the Benedictines, um, they have all sorts of degrees. Um, sometimes um, this is more and more, um, the actual number of Benedictine communities may be shrinking, but they are still a focus for more and more lay people finding that this is a point of reference that they really need um, in their lives. And so there are all sorts of um, different, as it were, degrees. You can become an oblate, which may mean um, a couple of years of um, studying, and then you are admitted formally to the community, and then you can go to the community a number of times. Um, a year, or you have a sort of commitment to that place, then you might be an associate. Um, and that is a, a looser form of connection. You might become, there are so many, there's something that we know called the Friends of St. Benedict. It's based in Washington, but um, it's in England as well. And that means that a newsletter keeps you in touch with monastic values. And then you can perhaps join um, a Benedictine week where a group of 20 or 30 people will live out the modified monastic life. They'll, we'll pray together, that's the framework of the day, study in the mornings, um, work with our hands in the afternoon, do something visual. There is every conceivable form of um, association, um, and it's growing enormously. I think because, if I can go back to what I said in passing, I think a lot of people recognize that the monastic life does keep the priorities of prayer um, and love and hospitality, openness, um, and commitment through those extraordinary um, 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 uh, vows. And I think uh, that um, Thomas Merton told the young men who are coming uh, to him to train to be monks um, that this is, doesn't ask, this is the fullness of our humanity. And this is what I get from um, Benedict. In fact, I've more and more been thinking about how, because I had to um, do some work on the Book of Kells and early, early uh, stuff. I was just thinking what we've lost. There's such exuberant energy around um, the Christian faith and practice in earlier years. And I think, you know, um, that we, we have lost it. And uh, read the prologue aloud, it's just full of energy and urgency. And I think the monastic life attracts lay people because, just because, it's about the fullness of life and not its diminution. Um, I'm, Mark, could you just read at top speed just the... Um, the verbs that Benedict uses, because, you see, this is full of um, commitment, isn't it? Listen, arise, open, incline, gird, run, fight, climb, seek, 
pray, read, serve, shun, praise, desire, fulfill, persevere, arrive. This is a man who has the audacity to change a phrase in St. John's Gospel which says walk. No, run, says Benedict. And that sums it up for me. <laughs> so find a community somewhere near you, or find one of these associations or um, fellowships, and you will find, I think, it's good news. Oh, um, if you are now going to ask me, am I an of anywhere? No, I'm not. I'll tell you why. Because and because. Um, you see, Benedict is writing the year 500. It's before. There's something early. There's something foundational in that era of Christendom, as I think there's also foundational in um, our own Selves. It's before the split of East and West. It's before the 12th century splits off the mind and the heart with the coming of the universities. It's before the Reformation. It's before the labels. And so um, I love the Anglican sisters at Westmoreland. I love the Roman Catholic brothers and sisters at Beck. I'm actually, I don't generally say this, but I have got an honorary degree from St. John's um, Collegeville, um, for ecumenical work. And so I'm a sort of daughter of St. John's Collegeville, which is the largest Roman Catholic um, <coughs> Benedictine um, community. Um, and I receive communion in nearly all of these places. And so I, I don't want to label myself um, in any sort of way. And that's another, another reason why the monastic life is so good. It's behind or, or beyond. I think it's about the kingdom. I think it's pointing us towards the kingdom, and I think it's rooted in the kingdom. I love the image of, that Benedict often uses for Christian communities as schools, uh, a school where you learn to relate deeper to God, to one another, and to yourself. Mm-hmm because we can talk often um, uh, about the church in terms that we've already graduated. (laughs) And I rather like the idea that actually we're still at school when we're um, in our Christian communities. There's time for one more question, I think. Yes. Well, I think think we have everything to learn from um, one... um, uh, another, and I think that there are a lot of um, dialogues going on between um, Christian monks and um, Hindu and um, Buddhist monks. There was a great meeting of um, <clears throat> the um, Dalai Lama with Thomas Merton, and they said, well, you know, we're both monks. We have so, so <clears throat> much... Um, in uh, common, and there was so much that they agreed on. And so there is a great deal. What you said about living is really the respect and reverence, isn't it? The handling of my hands, the um, just recognizing, um, uh, well, exactly, respect and reverence. Um, and um, what Thomas Merton said to the Dalai Lama um, 
and I think this would be true equally um, of Asian uh, religion. Uh, the Dalai Lama said, <clears throat> just define what you know your commitment is. And he said, and it picks up what you've just said, um, um, it's about ongoing, never-ending, complete transformation from the old to the new. And again, I think that would touch um, something that Asian would know about. We can learn. We have so much to learn from one another. And increasingly, we are. The Christian, uh, the Christian punctuation mark is the comma, not the full stop. Um, I'm afraid we're going to have to draw to a close because uh, the time's arrived. But um, I don't think anybody uh, leaving this cathedral today is going to be looking at any clouds because they're all going to be uh, on their iPhones and uh, Googling uh, Benedict's um, spirituality in a way. But um, I, I used at the beginning a word about um, Esther's books uh, nearly, yes, 30 years ago for me, that it, they acted somewhat as a magnet. They, they drew me, a magnet to the mystery of God. And uh, if you're like me, you've been sitting here very conscious of your own clutter, feeling I'm more than cluttered, actually. I'm sort of blocked. Uh, and once again, she's acted as a magnet, uh, recalling me to take that rather seriously uh, and to try and find that key, the lost key to the heart and the way that you've um, spoken about your own life, about reading buildings, those, those wonderful sort of symmetries of wonder which are our cathedrals. And also I was very struck by your, your idea that you know, a vision furnishes a building uh, but also I think what you've taught us here, again, through Benedict, is a vision furnishes a life as well. And uh, for that, uh, on behalf of us all here, I want to thank you very deeply. Well, thank you for being here.